Would you turn with me your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as we continue our study through this book? Um, I've entitled this series of message, The Gospel of Grace Explained, and that's essentially what Paul set out to do in his letter to the Romans in a complete, comprehensive, and concise way. And we're going to talk today about what I just simply say, how to be right with God. That's really in a short way saying what the word righteousness really means. It means to be in right relationship with God. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? And Paul begins with, but now, an important phrase to begin with, but now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On the observing of the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I pray that you would give me grace <clears throat> to simplify the message, but to be full in its explanation, Lord, that we might really understand truly how we stand before our God. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It may be a little bit embarrassing to admit, but <clears throat> most of us spend much of our life seeking and striving for something about which we can boast. Now, boast is a word that we don't like to use in application to ourselves, but what I mean by that is we yearn for at least one notable thing about us that will set us apart from the herd, that will make us feel significant, valuable, worthwhile. We may call it our purpose or meaning or our ambition or our aspiration or maybe just simply a long-term goal, but really it comes down to is a rather desperate need to feel good enough, at least in the eyes of others, to be liked, to be loved, to be cared about, to be included, to be missed when we're gone, to have someone say, it's just not the same with him or her gone now and not around with us anymore. It's that idea that we all can go back to when we were in grade school and they were picking teams 
Remember that? Everybody lines up, and always the best players were the captain, and they began to choose. And it was always terrible for some of us when they had picked their teams, and you were that odd man. And then they began to argue over who gets to take you. And somehow, that's almost like a fear that many of us have in life when we come up to various measuring sticks in our world, that we have this fear that we're, we've been, as Belshazzar was told, you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting. You're just not good enough. You don't measure up. Bottom line is we all want to be valued. That's not necessarily all wrong. Because first of all, God has repeatedly stated in his word that you are valuable, that you are special. I think it's more than coincidental that everybody has a unique fingerprint, uh, uh, that they can do an eye scan that identifies you and separates you from everybody else, that we know that your DNA is specially selected to be you, that you have all the pieces and parts that you have, and the functionality to a large degree that you have, because God has specifically imprinted that code that is uniquely you. There's not another you that when you leave this planet, you will not be replaced by someone else because there will be somebody who may be similar, but they will never be the same. That you occupy a moment in human history that is unique to you, and the impact of your life is going to be unique whether you recognize it or not. As Chuck Swindoll once observed, he said, it's like being the keeper of a lighthouse. He never knows how many ships and lives he's saved But for one thing for certain we know is that he has. And the same may be true of your life. You may try to measure the impact of your life by what you can see your life has done, who you've touched, conversations you've had. But the truth of the matter is that you will have an impact far greater than anything you ever thought. And even in those times when you're sitting back and saying, well, I'm contributing nothing, I'm not really making a difference, God says differently. He says you are the light of the world. You you are the salt of life. You are the thing that causes things to be distinct and unique and notable, that there's a savor to who you are that is unique to who you are. Now, as I say this, I know some of you are discounting this completely because you are in such an entrenched habit of really kind of berating and devaluing yourself that you can't hardly stand to hear me say this because there's another voice back in your mind that keeps on saying, yeah, that may be true of him or her, but that's not true of me. And I just want to say in the most loving way, stop it. Just stop doing that. Because there's a point where we have to begin to stand on truth and not simply on emotions or feelings or even pre-programmed thinking. Because when he says in places like Psalm 139, 14, that I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made, your works are wonderful, I am, you are God's work. He created you. And he says, it's wonderful. This is wonderful what God has done, that he has placed his image upon you and identified you as being of him. When Peter says to us, especially in the church, that we're God's elect, a a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, you are the people of God. As he says in in Ephesians 1.14, you are a purchased possession. God specifically went and purchased you. 
And he didn't purchase you out of the slave markets of sin and death because there was nothing left on the shelf and he had to take you. But as we can see, there is a full palette of people on the planet from whom God could choose. And he says, he chose you. That's why you believe is because he chose you. So feeling valued is not wrong. And secondly, God made us so that we would need to feel valued. In fact, we were designed by God to be in relationship, first with Him, but also in relationship with others. Doesn't that what makes broken relationships such a difficulty for us? Because we're created to have relationships. Staying happily connected with other people is an essential source of personal happiness as most, if not all of us, recognize. So that in a sense, being a people pleaser is not altogether bad. My wife is a people and she likes it when I try to please her. So it's not a bad thing necessarily to be a people pleaser. That's why six times in the, New Te- in the Old Testament, God said to Israel, you are my treasured possession. Years ago, when I was going back and forth to Russia, I, made, I stopped counting how many times I went back and forth after I made fifth, my 50th trip. And I was going back and forth. My wife, finally, we had a deal that if I would bring her back some of the china that they make in St. Petersburg, that she would overlook my often absence It was a bribe. In those days, it was dirt cheap. (laughs) I mean, it was unbelievably how inexpensive it was. And so I was always carrying back a load of this stuff with me. And and now it sits displayed. We don't ever use it. It's too nice to use. But it's prominently featured in her hutch. We look at it, and I often look at it and say, it is so beautiful how sad it would be if one of those things would be broken. Therefore, we won't use it. Now, God doesn't think that way about you. He doesn't have any trouble breaking you, but nonetheless. But ultimately, the evidence of how valuable you are to God is displayed in His Son upon the cross. That what God was willing to pay to make you His own. I love what something Max Licata once said. He says, since you are God's idea, you are a good idea. You were God's good idea. You were God's best thought. That's why at the end of his creative act, he created man. He created woman. You were God's best thought. You were the pinnacle of his creative work. But problems arise when we allow pleasing others to be more important to us than pleasing God first. When the raucous applause of earth is more important to us than the silent approval of heaven. When being valued by people we can see is more important to us than God whom we cannot. When, as as John put it in John 12, 43, that we love praise from men more than praise from God. The word praise there can be translated approval or honor or glory or boasting. That we love that, to have others boast about me. As I said to one of my granddaughters a few weeks ago, 
I said, you know, honey, I'm so tired of talking about myself. Why don't I sit here quietly and let you talk about me for a while? <clears throat> Her mom started laughing and she looked at me and went, what? What? <laughs> But it's when we allow man's definition of righteousness to trump God's, no pun intended, that we get in trouble. What do I mean by righteousness? Well, according to the Bible, it's, it means moral perfection required by God to enter heaven. What is, it re what is required for someone to get into heaven? You see, our conflict begins when we follow the cultural's ever-changing definition of a, what it means to be righteous or to be good enough for both God and man, both on heaven and on earth, rather than looking to God's standard of measurement. Because not only is our culture and our world at variance with God's idea, if not always, but have you ever noticed that today's hero can quickly become tomorrow's zero? Sometimes it's deserved, but not always. Usually the greats grow old and just kind of go out of fashion. I was thinking about being a professional athlete. The professional baseball player's career on average is 5.5 years. A professional basketball player is less, 4.7 years. A football player is on average three years. Most musicians, if they make it to the top of their field, become renowned musicians, are really going to be there at most 10 years. And after that, they start planning their comeback tour 25 years down the road. And most never have it. We might simply say in life, nobody bats a thousand. No golfer ever comes in with a score of 18. The simple fact is that even if they could, they couldn't keep it. It wouldn't happen. Now, granted, there are some people who come closer to the cultural ideal of what is basically perfection. But when it comes to God's measuring stick of moral perfection, as we studied last week, he said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one will be declared righteous, that is, by our deeds or our accomplishments, not even one. You see, in a sense, to be human is to be both damaged and without Christ to be damned. To be damaged and to be damned. I mean, that's, that's the worst Two things you can imagine, to suffer through life and then suffer for eternity because you suffered through life. That's why Paul began by telling us that no one is righteous but. That contraction is huge. No one is righteous by human standards or God's standards but God now has created a righteousness that's from Him. Not something that comes from you or from me. It's a righteousness that comes from God. It's apart from the law, or we might say it's apart from anything we can do or say or know or accomplish or not do. And He has made that known to us. 
You see, in the context, Paul is speaking to the Jew whose identity, his sense of value and worth was based on his ability to keep the Mosaic law of God as, as perfectly as possible. For them, life was lived out in a balance that heaven can only be achieved if the things that you do that are good outweigh the things that you do are bad. And I remember as one Orthodox Jew telling me in, in Israel one time, he said, we never know until we get to heaven how we've done. We just hope that the good we've done will outweigh whatever bad we might have done. But you see, Jesus ultimately destroyed that entire theology. When he said in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, keep in mind, we kind of speak pejoratively of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but in the eyes of these men, the contemporaries that Jesus was speaking to, these were the pinnacle of religious holiness. These were the guys who were doing it better than anybody else. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, well, he says, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subjected to judgment. <clears throat> Let me ask a personal question. Ever been angry? Today? <laughs> Just hurting the kids into the car? Ever been angry? <laughs> you know, getting them out of bed, getting them dressed, getting them fed, getting... No, we do all the time. Why was Jesus being so hard? It's no wonder that Paul would say, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because God never simply gets angry. And his whole point is simply this. We cannot be saved through any kind of man-made righteousness. And that's what the religions of the world are all about. They're about man-made righteousness. They're formulas and systems with rituals and obligations and responsibilities and rules and regulations that are built up and says, if you do these things, you have a fighting chance to get to heaven. And God spans back and says, no, you don't. He calls that a lie, a lie that pushes people further away from God rather than bringing them close. In fact, he said to his own contemporaries, when you get done with that kind of theology, you've made them twice the child of hell that they were before they ever heard from you, that your message is toxic. It's not a tonic to what ails them. No, salvation, he said, requires a God-made righteousness. And God has a name for it. It's called grace. Being justified freely by His grace. What is grace? Well, grace is the one thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. I'm surprised most people don't realize this, but no other religion teaches grace the way the Bible teaches grace. And even within Christianity, that issue has been kind of blurred when you have certain groups saying, well, you're saved by faith and works. You're saved by both grace and your efforts. That's, that's nonsensical. That's oil and water 
trying to call themselves the same thing. There's a natural repulsion to those two things, if you will. It's like the person who says, I love spaghetti, I just hate noodles. And you would sit back and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. It's not spaghetti anymore without the pasta. And that's the same, and grace is no longer grace if it somehow becomes predicated upon my works. It's the one thing that Christianity says that separates everything because it tells us it's not about what we do or what we don't do. It's not who we are or what group we belong to. It's not about earning. It's not about deserving. In fact, we would say it's just the opposite. It is a gift freely, sovereignly given to a wholly undeserving world based solely on the goodness of the giver. It's all about him. I remember years ago when I was first starting the ministry here, I uh, had Gail Irwin, my first guest speaker, come in, and we, I brought some pastors in to talk with him and let him answer his, sagaciously as the wise man in the corner. And, and so I thought, well, I'll ask him a, a good theological question. I said, what's the balance between works and grace? And he looked at me for a moment, and he said, you don't understand the question. Now, when you ask a question, you don't want somebody saying that to you, <laughs> especially amongst your peers who you're trying to impress, boast. He says, you don't understand the question. Grace is imbalance. It's all of God. It's none of you. There is no balance between the two. It's all of grace. I love what Max Lucado said regarding the gospel of grace. He says, God's greatest creation is not the flung stars or the gorged canyon. It is his eternal plan to reach his children. That's God's greatest creation. The grace, the gospel of grace is God's greatest creation. Chuck Swindoll said, grace acknowledges the ugliness of sin by choosing to see beyond it. It's a gift of tender mercy when it makes the least sense. That's our struggle, isn't it? It's, it's, it's God's tender mercy when we deserve the opposite. So that no wonder it staggers our minds. Well, no wonder we have trouble grasping it. No wonder we have trouble living it out and being gracious people. Because when God tells us to be like Him and to show grace to someone else, our mind gets bogged down in our concept of what is just, what they deserve. And grace is not giving them what they deserve. Grace is giving them blessings that they do not deserve is summed up in Jesus' relational instruction where he said, pray for those who persecute you. Love those who bring adversity into your life. That makes absolutely no sense. Hitler said it was weakness. Stalin said it is foolishness to live that way. And Jesus said, it's the only way if you're going to live in God's way. Donald Barnhouse, great theologian, he said, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. 
It's God stooping down, God becoming us, taking on the robe of flesh and dwelling among us. That's grace, becoming one with us, dying in our place. To us, grace feels awkward because it's out of balance. It's, it's out of balance with our concept of what is just. Bad people should pay for the bad they have done. Unless, of course, we happen to be the bad people. <laughs> then we're really big on grace and mercy. But it's why some people have suggested that grace is the opposite of judgment or that somehow God's grace took away justice. But in fact, grace is God's response injustice to what was just. God is not simply and only a loving God. He's all that, but He's also a just and a moral God. And this is why He gave the law in the first place, to reveal the glory of His holiness and His righteous character. And it's why every soul without Christ's grace stands condemned by that same law. Why we can say with Paul that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether you're just simply referencing the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, or if you want to take all 613 commandments of the entire Old Testament, don't bother. You'll take no time for you to find somewhere in there where you've transgressed, something that you've violated. And he says, if you don't keep the whole law, then you're guilty before God. God was trying to say to us, this is who I am. This is my nature. This is my character. I am a loving God. And part of that loving expression is the fact that I am a holy God who can love you purely, without manipulation, without deceit, without ulterior motive, unlike anything that you and I can ever do. That sin had to be paid for. The moral balance of the universe depended upon it. And so God provided a means to pay the debt. He did this, Paul says, to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice. God brought in grace to demonstrate justice. How so? He goes on to say, through the redemption, literally the release of a payment of ransom. That's what the word redemption means. It means you, you're ransoming someone out of prison, out of debt, out of bondage, out of slavery. You're paying what they owe that they might be released. You're not declaring them innocent, but rather you're acquitting them and giving them pardon. None of us can say, I'm innocent before God. We're all guilty before God, but what he says, by my grace, because you have believed in me, I declare you pardoned. So that as he goes on, the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, or as Peter would say later in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. 
And this is why Paul ends this passage by saying to us, do we then nullify the law by bringing in grace? No, he says, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The righteousness of the law, the justice of God's law had to be satisfied, and it could be only satisfied by a sinlessly perfect sacrifice. And Jesus said to the writers of Hebrews, a body you have prepared me. You gave me a body that I might die on that cross. This was not God's afterthought. This was God's first thought, how to redeem the mankind that he was going to create. But there are two central things when we talk about grace that we must understand. They are really the, the things that anchor it in our lives in a way that, that matters and is always being assaulted, even in theological discussions. The first is simply this, that grace is free. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. In fact, even the word where he says, you are justified freely by his grace. This word freely in its original meaning means it's a gift. It has no cause. It's, it's given freely. It's given for nothing. There's no reason behind it. It's just given to someone. There's no payment expected. It's just given. There was no, 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 it, God didn't look down on, from heaven upon you and say, gosh darn, he's so cute. He's so clever. She's so winsome in her personality. I just love it when she does this with her hair and twinkles with her. I just find you. No. I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend you, but I think when God looks in the faces of angels and then he looks at us, he thinks, oh my gosh. <laughs> we used to always say, that's a face that only a mother could love. Well, actually, they said it to me a lot, but... <laughs> In many ways, you are an individual that maybe it's true that only God could love. In Psalm 8, <laughs> uh, David writes, the angels, he tells us, look down on earth and says, what is man? Uh, I'll paraphrase it. What is man that you like him? What is it about him? That he's born lower than the angels and yet you have intended to glorify him above the angels of heaven. What, what gives here? And you know what God's answer is, I think? When the angels say, well, we don't understand the logic behind it, he said it's the best logic in the world. It's grace. Paul writing in Ephesians 1 said, God will be glorified forever because of the grace that he has shown to you and me. You see, we're conditioned to go through life looking to find a reason that we can say to other people, I'm good enough. I'm worthy of your love and your respect. It drives people to insane levels. I was just thinking about when John Hinckley shot President Reagan and his reason for it was because he wanted to impress Jodie Foster. Now, we look at that and saying, you know, this is nuttier than a fruitcake. This is crazy. This is insane. And granted, maybe, but what is it that drives people? We see these extremes, but they're not that removed from us. Because you and I do it in little and small ways all the time. 
And we think the answer is to lock on to that one thing that will set us apart. But the problem is, no matter how good you become at anything in life, there is going to be someone you're going to encounter who's better, who is liked more because they're better. And we live in a culture that rewards that. That's not just our culture, but it's human culture that does that. And we find ourselves becoming the dog that chases his proverbial tail. We live like chickens who have been decapitated. It happened so quickly, they didn't know it until they went to cough. You know, it's... it's and so we live our lives in this, in this, this drivenness. When God says, in this world, you'll always have troubles. In this world, you'll always have people who are measuring you and depreciating you and criticizing you and finding fault. But God says, I created a whole new way of measuring the value. It's called grace. And how he yearns for us to be people of grace. Even the word justified means to be declared righteous, to be acquitted of our guilt, to be freed. It's a forensic term. It talks about being basically having whatever handwriting ordinances is written against you, whatever record of wrongs you have, those have been taken away. That you don't have to live in the memory of past failure but you can simply live in the present reality of God's grace in your life right now. That is so wonderful that most of us have trouble believing it's possible. Isn't that the struggle? Oh, I wish that was true, but you know, I did this one time. <laughs> no, I did it more than one time. It was really my defining habit, and I just can't believe that God would forgive me for that not realizing that in that moment not only are we being irrelevant, but we're being irreverent. That we're actually dishonoring God by saying, no, I can't let go of my past. No, I don't mean you don't learn from the past. Hopefully we do. But you don't become governed by your past. That you don't live a life of shame, both hidden and exposed, but you live a life of knowing that I have been declared in right relationship with God, that when I stand before his presence in the heavenlies, he's not going to be looking at me and saying, oh, it's you. We've got your file right here. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay, because of grace, I have to let you in, but don't stink the place up, okay? You know, what is... We almost feel like God's going to say, what's, what's that odor? Oh, it's soap. Oh, no wonder I didn't recognize it. Because of filth of your sand. And we, we just, we live in this, friends. We're haunted by it. We live in a culture that constantly gives us portraits telling us that if we buy this, if we use this, if we ingest this, if we do, you know, sign up for this and that, that somehow we'll, we'll attain to this happiness, and we wonder, why is it that we can't get there? Because that's the nature of this world. It's a world in which constantly emphasizes the imperfection of who you are. You are imperfect. You are flawed. 
you were both damaged and before you came to Christ, you were damned. The wrath of God, Paul said in Ephesians 2, was upon you. But because of his love and his mercy, he showed you grace. And grace is a righteousness made by God for sinful people like you and me. But how does that grace become activated in my life? This is the second point, that grace comes by faith only and alone. Seven times in this short passage, Paul uses the word faith. That's significantly more than any other word that he uses in the whole passage. He says it comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's through faith in His blood, he goes on to say. It, it justifies those who have faith in Jesus. A man is justified by faith apart from observing law, justified the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by the same faith because it's all of faith. In other words, the grace of God has no effect without faith in Christ. It is the gift under the tree with your name on it that never becomes a blessing or a benefit to you if you refuse to pick it up and open it. It's grace that God extends freely. And many of us sit there trying to figure out how we can repay. You ever given a gift to somebody and they immediately they feel obligated to respond in kind. That's one of the reasons some of us say, well, we just don't do gift exchanges because we don't want to have to go out and buy presents for everybody. And we kind of think that's the way God's operating. Well, here's the free gift of grace. Wink, wink. Well, what are you going to give me in return, huh? Present your body as a living sacrifice? That's a good start. And you and I look and say, that's all we got. No. It's grace that's given freely with, without expectation. I know some of you, are, your brains are exploding right now. But you see, faith is much more than a mental assent or agreement with something. I mean, we toss the word around fairly cavalierly. We say, well, I, I have faith in you. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's kind of risky to say that in a sense because I, basically it's really what we're saying is I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt because I know that you're a stinking sinner just like me. I want, you know, truth, but I want, you know, commitment with verification. Faith doesn't operate that way. Faith is a conviction. It's something that is firmly held so that it exerts control over the way I live my life. If I want to know where your faith is, all I have to do is look at your lifestyle. All you have to do is look at mine. James said as much in James 2.18. He says, I will show you my faith by what I do. That my actions are the consequence not of my effort. They are the consequence of what I really believe to be true. If I believe that what God says in His Word is true, then when I read it, I do it. And when, I, when I forgive those who I have resentments towards, I am acting in faith. 
When I love people who aren't attractive to me for various reasons, that's an act of faith. That faith we often refer to as something that we patiently wait in, but it's a very active thing. It moves us to do certain things. It compels us, Paul said. When he writes to the Corinthians, the love of Christ compels us. We said, well, it's got to be that love. It's faith in the fact that he loves me because I do not always feel that God loves me in an emotional or sensory way, but I know by faith that he loves me And therefore, I am more than a conqueror. And even though I don't understand what he's doing or how he's moving and why he allows certain things, by faith I know that God is faithful. By faith I know that he loves me. By faith I know that he does cause everything to work out for the good of those who do love him and who are responding to his calling upon their life, who are following him. Faith has its own active narrative. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew 7, 16, by their fruits you will know them. You'll see what emanates from their life. When you see them repenting for sin, do you ever think of that as a a fruit of the Spirit? When they see you, when you're walking humbly with God, that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's expression of the Spirit of God in your life. When you reach out and extend yourself, it moves you to do things that common sense would say no to. Self-interest would say no to. But faith moves us to respond to things because we know one simple thing. This is pleasing to God. And I believe, as Paul said, we forgive because we have been forgiven. That we love because we have been loved. Faith is a very active and motive force. And faith is a very thing that will motivate you to take something that you've heard here today and go out these doors and begin to make life decisions differently because you simply believe that God is true. But the foundation of that belief is believing that God has declared you righteous. He's declared you to be righteous. You're in right standing with Him because you have believed on Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's it. So when somebody says, well, how are you doing? Amazing. What's so amazing? Grace. Hey, that's catchy. That'd make a good song. (laughs) I'm doing amazing. Because in spite of all the fumbles and dribbles and walking and losses to St. Mary's and all the rest of it, in spite of all those things, I serve a God of grace who says you are more than a conqueror. Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear these things that I've expressed, attempted to express. This grace that is the righteousness of God bestowed upon man, this 
this thing that satisfies the, the complaints of Satan against your people, the accuser of the brethren who continuously points his finger of condemnation at all men. We know that one day, Lord, we will stand before your presence in eternity. And in that moment, Lord, we won't be making any efforts to <laughs> explain or rationalize or argue and we're just going to simply say, Father, thank you for your forgiveness of my sins. Thank you for your grace that allows a sinner like me to be here with you for all of eternity. Thank you for the grace that amazes Thank you for a grace that is so audacious, so generous, because it is so undeserved and so freely given. Thank you for your grace, Father. In Jesus' name. As we continue in our time, we always set aside some moments for us to be individually and corporately to respond to God, whether it being just the singing of songs of worship or the uttering of prayers silently or even with the help and accompaniment of somebody else. It all is happening because of this thing called grace. We don't deserve to have a single prayer answered. But when we ask him, he says, I will grant your request. Why? Grace. Your marriage is in chaos. Well, the answer isn't fixing your mate or getting a newer version. The answer is in grace. When two people just simply settle their, center their hearts on, on the Lord Jesus Christ and come before Him and say, God, we need your grace. We need your grace to fix our family. We need your grace to heal our bodies. We need your grace to meet our economic challenges. We need your grace to heal our broken hearts. We need your grace. That grace is your righteousness in God's eyes. If you want prayer, there'll be some of us available up here to pray with you. We encourage you to partake of the elements of communion. If, if you're a child of grace, I mean, if you're not a child of grace, if you're going to do this as just another duty, another work, um, you, you've missed the whole point. You might want to download or pick up a CD or something like that and listen to it again. Because this, these elements are all about grace. It's His body that's given. It's His blood that was shed for us, undeserved, unwarranted, unmerited. And we celebrate that grace each time we do it. I encourage you to respond. In Jesus' name.